0: to the Financial Law Forum. I'm Tracy Davis and with me is my partner Tanya Esposito to present our podcast series on the financial services industry and the law. Today, we're honored and privileged to welcome Afia Jordan, a lawyer and a leader at JP Morgan Chase. We're going to work with Afia today to try and explore The very unique intersectionality between banking and the African American community. But before we turn our attention to the topic of today, I'd like to just briefly discuss with you my background. I'm a business lawyer, a litigator, and a trusted legal advisor that handles disputes along with providing sage legal advice to businesses finding themselves grappling with the ever-changing legal landscape arising as a result of the use of fintech, the rise of ESG, as well as artificial intelligence. Just one housekeeping matter before we turn the program over to Tanya. The participants are speaking here in their personal capacities only and not on behalf of their employers or clients. The contents of this presentation are intended for general purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice or legal opinion on any specific fact or circumstance. So, with that taken care of and out of the way, Tanya, do you want to give us a little bit of?
1: Yeah, sure. Thanks, Tracy. Um, So happy to be here with you and Afia today. And um, as Tracy mentioned, I am law partners with Tracy, and I'm actually in Washington, D.C., where I've spent my entire career in private practice, focused primarily on consumer issues and and a big, huge focus on financial services. I litigate on behalf of a number of financial services institutions, both banks and non-banks, handling both class actions and uh, government enforcement and investigation matters. Dealing with the entire alphabet soup of consumer protection statutes, so also RESPA, TILA, FDCPA, FCRA, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm happy to be here today to talk about the African-American community and its cross-section with financial services, and very, very pleased to have our special guest, Afia Jordan, who uh, is with JPMorgan Chase. And before I give a more robust introduction of Afia, I just want to mention that her views as expressed today during this podcast are her own personal views and not that of her employer, JPMorgan Chase. So Afia is a special guest today. We're so fortunate to have her join us. Uh, she's Vice President and Assistant General Counsel at JPMorgan Chase, and she has great experience in advising on a number of technology projects and transactions, reviewing standards and practices for compliance with federal and state consumer statutes, developing solutions for emerging risk issues, resolving incidents that implicate litigation exposure, and negotiating Settlements but in addition to that, Afia serves in uh, leadership roles for JP Morgan Chase's Legal Diversity Council, Black Organization for Leadership and Development, and Legal Pro Bono Committee. And so I want to welcome Afia and turn it over to her to introduce herself further, Afia.
2: Hi, thank you for having me today. I sound pretty impressive on paper. (laughs) (laughs) You are impressive. Um, Thank you very much for having me today. Excited to talk about this. It's been a year where we've really been able to do a lot of impactful work. And so I'm looking forward to talking about what we've done in terms of our community outreach, as well as some of our pro bono work and our diversity efforts at J.P. Morgan.
0: So this is our inaugural podcast, our first episode ever. So we're thrilled to have you Afia here to talk with us about your experience both in private practice as well as now working in-house at JP Morgan Chase. So let's just kick off the conversation. Tell us a little bit about your leadership role at J.P. Morgan Chase, particularly in the diversity and inclusion space?
2: Sure. I've recently been elected to be the co-chair for North America for our Legal Diversity Council. That's That's been since this month, January. Uh, prior to that, I was co-chair for our outside council, sub-council. Um, I've been at the bank for about four years. And I remember when I first joined um, my first manager was very involved in diversity and inclusion efforts. Um, And so I said to him, you know, how can I become involved? And it was him mentoring me and um, inviting me to meetings and getting me in front of the right people that I was able to join and do small, discrete product projects. And over time, I realized I wanted a bigger role. I realized I had ideas for programming um, I have a particular skill for organizing things very, very well. I still keep a paper calendar. Um, and so I was tapped um, to to be in a co-chair role. And um, fortunately for me, my colleagues recognized my contributions last year. So I have an even bigger platform and an opportunity to help other people become more involved in the efforts and bring some of their ideas to life now. So it's kind of scary. <laughs> it's a it's a big role to think that, you know, you're putting on things across the entirety of the United States. Um, but at the same time, it's a challenge I'm ready for. So,
1: so as you yeah. think about that role, how has it evolved over the past six, 12 months?
2: I will tell you the first thing that had to happen was probably about March. We scrapped all programming we had on the calendar <laughs> because... Wow. We, you know, we couldn't do it. A lot of our work um, was in-person meetings, in-person panels. Right before um, we had to go into lockdown, I'm based in New York City, and we were probably the first um, place in the country to sort of say, stop meeting in person. Um, Right before that, we were fortunate to have Nicole Hannah-Jones come and speak to us about the 1619 Project, and I was super happy we were able to get that off the ground because we had about 200 people in person. That would not happen anymore. So any other events we had on the calendar, we had to pivot, and we had to become much more creative and think: how can we put this in a virtual environment? Because the moment was so important. It was uh, not just George Floyd and Breonna Taylor; it was all of the other ones before them and after them. And in the midst of that, there was still a pandemic, and it's adversely impacting communities of color and. You know, we couldn't just sit by, especially as diversity and inclusion leaders, and let that moment pass without saying something about it. But the other thing we couldn't do is let that moment pass without doing something about it. And so we have so many colleagues, and including us, the leaders, um, who wanted to be able to do something. And it's very limited what you can do when you're stuck in the house. First thing we could do is talk about it. So we were having extremely candid conversations of the type that we certainly weren't having before, you know, George Floyd was murdered. Um, Myself and my colleagues were very vulnerable. Um, You know, we came to the table, there was crying in meetings. Calls were canceled because, you know, our emotions couldn't handle it. And after we started talking, to each other but also bringing in panelists and experts and people who could explain to people not necessarily who were unaware that these things were happening or who hadn't been impacted by it before um then we started doing something and so over time our role in the legal diversity council has has evolved from just speaking about things um generally um to being very particular and specific and also to adding an advocacy piece to it because we realized we're all lawyers who can do something. And so we started partnering with a lot of our community service um, organizations and doing something. And so those were the two big shifts that I've seen over time.
1: And have you seen uh, an uptick in engagement in in your colleagues and in your peers?
2: Um, I don't have hard numbers from a personal level. I, a lot more people have reached out. Um, a lot of people, I got an email this morning says, you know, Hey, do you have any more, um, any upcoming pro bono projects that I could be involved in? I have a running wait list of people who I know I can reach out to when something comes in the door, um, or, you know, colleagues who I've worked with before I came to JP Morgan, who I can reach out to who are doing exciting work and and maybe we can help with that. So I've seen definitely a lot of people who I didn't think um, really thought about these issues. I have seen a lot of them come to the fore and say, hey, I really do want
0: to help. That's excellent. Um, and you mentioned that you were surprised your colleagues recognized your contributions early on in you taking on that co-leadership role when you started, but it's not just your colleagues who have recognized your efforts and the passion that you show in in making things really happen in this space, you are the recent recipient of the J.P. Morgan Chase's Joan uh, Guggenheimer Legal Diversity Champion Award. Can you just tell us a little bit about the award and um, what work you did that you think contributed to you being the recipient of it?
2: Yeah, <laughs> I was I was extremely shocked. Um, so it's awarded. Every year, to the colleagues who are making uh, a, a significant contribution to legal and diversity legal diversity efforts um, in, in the legal department, and I was sitting at home for our uh, end of the year town hall, and obviously, I'm I'm alone in here. You can't see anyone except the person on the screen, and then I saw my face on the screen, and I kind of was like, "What is happening? <laughs> like, I do not <laughs> understand." What is happening? Why am I on that screen? And um, it was very humbling. I will tell you, I um, because I am working from home and I'm by myself, I just was doing my work and I was doing work that I thought was meaningful. And I never for a minute considered that um, I would be recognized for it because I feel like other people are also doing great work. I honestly had no idea. I have nominated people for the award, including people I nominated this year. (laughs) Um, But it's, you know, it's a process where you have to be nominated and people have to express all of the different things that you've done. Um, One of the things they mentioned that I'm most proud of is the advocacy work I've done, including work I did um, a couple of years ago in Laredo, Texas, um, meeting with people in detention centers who had just crossed the border. Um, and we were pretty much the first conversations they had coming into the United States about why they were coming here. Um, so we've done a lot of work. I've done a lot of work with um, Louisiana in Louisiana, New Orleans, with um, people who were convicted by non-unanimous juries, but who are serving very harsh sentences. Um, and we've we've been doing a lot of work with the ACLU of Louisiana on. Um, potential police misconduct claims. And so I'm very proud of that work and I'm ha- and I'm happy to have been recognized for it because when you come in house, particularly to um, financial services, you think that certain opportunities are foreclosed to you. You don't think you're gonna be involved in that type of work, even if it matters to you um, because it just doesn't really necessarily translate. But I'm happy that I have the opportunity to be able to do it because um, the law degree can be used in many different ways. And so to be able to use it in a way to help people who don't otherwise have access to legal services is very meaningful and important to me.
0: Well, having seen your uh, commitment through your actions to access to justice, uh, it seems very appropriate that you are also the recipient of the New York State Court Access to Justice Program award. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Um, you know, I agree with with you in that where you don't have where you're in house and you don't necessarily have um, a platform that you've involved yourself with it, with the state court system, um, where, you know, access to justice to many in the community is really um, And this. I can tell you based upon my experience having worked there. Um, many uh, in the minority community, their access to justice is really limited to the criminal justice system. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, the absence of an awareness that the civil judicial system is there for communities of color as well, I think is is one point that if we can all in-house, outside counsel, from the judiciary's perspective, work on you know, in educating and providing access to justice, it's critically important. So could you just tell us about your involvement with the court system and your... Sure. To this? Um,
2: that was another surprise. <laughs> uh, I, had, uh, I had started to become involved with that group, probably, I think it was eight to 10 years ago. Um, I remember it was, uh, the financial crisis was still in, in high swing and the access to justice program um, has a number of different pillars to it. You can do, um, you know, financial um, counseling, housing assistance, um, uncontested divorces, that type of thing. And I have volunteered a number of hours um, in Brooklyn in King Supreme Court. And unbeknownst to me, I mean, I would just say I have free time, I'm gonna come and the supervisor there was like, okay, if yeah, <laughs> and I would just come. <laughs> um, and I didn't realize how many hours I was putting I wasn't logging it for any particular purpose. And then um, I think it was Justice Fern Fisher who presented the award to me. Yeah. And that was, an it was humbling. Yeah, because I just was thinking, well, I was just doing this because it's a a good thing to do and these people you know who come a lot of them um English is not their first language um and a lot of them just are new to America too and so the way it all works and you think something's going to be super simple because people watch tv shows and have Justice is Swift there but in real life (laughs) it takes quite a long time so I was happy to do it um very humbling very grateful for it.
1: What an incredible contribution. I mean, that's so heartening to hear. And, and um, you know, I think that all of us have had thoughts about ways in which we could give back to the community or um, really use what little um, spare time we have. And this is pre-COVID, of course, you know, most effectually. And I can't think of a a better way than making yourself available to folks who just don't understand the judicial system, can't navigate it, um, are new to this country and just need, you know, a, lend, a hand to help them navigate that process. So, um, fantastic work for sure. Thank you. Um, We're very, very impressed with all that you've shared with us so far, but would be interested in knowing um, a little bit more about specific projects that you are either involved with or aware of that Chase has engaged in, um, perhaps in connection with financial literacy in the African-American community or communities of color. Could you tell us a little bit about what you know about that process?
2: Sure. I mean, and I've been fortunate to attend some of these programs as well. If anybody goes to Essence Fest, you will notice there's a Chase booth there um, in the lounge. And and that's not an accident. Um, The CEO of our consumer banking, Shonda Duckett, is a really great advocate for financial literacy and engaging communities of color. And we partnered with Essence on a number of opportunities Um, we've also done a number of programs in the community on um, mortgage loans and how people can obtain housing Um, we've done a number of um, commitments to entrepreneurs of color in terms of uh, grants as well as programming for guidance Um, in the legal department we have helped minority-owned businesses through our small business clinics um, we definitely have a, lot a robust legal department pro bono program, I will say. Um, we have a week of pro bono service, but we also year-round commit to a pro bono service um, with different community organizations. Um, in terms of educational financial literacy, we do partner with a lot of community organizations. I have personally been involved with programming for Big Brothers and Big Sisters, where we have um, spoken to the students about different types of um, consumer products, how they should manage their credit, um, not take on a lot of debt, that type of thing. I've also been involved in community service projects with Junior Achievement, where we have gone into classrooms and taught entrepreneurial skills, um, business skills, the different languages, global marketplace, that type of thing. So it's across the company and it comes out in various ways um, through different departments, You know, generalized financial literacy, but also how we can impact folks already on their path to owning their own businesses and people on their path to owning their own homes. So I'm really proud of that. I think it's great to work at a place that's investing that kind of money when it really doesn't have to, um, to be out in the community doing that type of outreach.
1: Absolutely. Um, That's all very impressive and and so interesting to hear. Um, You know, and beyond financial literacy and sort of access to information, um, Mm -hmm. are you also engaging in any efforts to help with recruitment of, you know, African American folks who are interested in financial services at any level in terms of employment? Um, and, and, whether that be, you know, just through the community generally or, um, at local area schools, are there things like that happening as well?
2: Um, I mean, J.P. Morgan has always been committed to having a diverse workforce. Uh, one of the more intentional efforts they've done, um, we have, um, in legal, we have the Black Legal Forum, which was started last year. And that's an attempt to make sure that we're supporting and mentoring um, Black employees. But we also um, do referrals and that type of thing. We also have Advancing Black Pathways, which is another means to opportunity for folks. Um, We do a lot of recruitment efforts at HBCUs. I think we won a social media award this year um, for our Rep Your Flag event on Twitter. Oh, (laughs) Um, awesome. The HBCUs. Um, Yeah, so we do a lot of um, intentional recruiting as well. Um, And I've seen that a lot, you know, coming from law firm life, where it wasn't necessarily as diverse. Um, When I first started, when I did leave law firm life, um, it was quite larger numbers, I will say, of of particularly Black lawyers um, than there were when I started. And I will say that that's also happening in-house. It takes a, wh- a long time, um, but I see the efforts are there. I see people are trying and they're thinking and being intentional about how to make it better.
0: Now you spoke briefly about um, JP's initiatives with uh, diverse communities of color uh, and at providing entrepreneurs access to capital and some of the educational um, outlets that you provide through your programming. Can you speak more specifically about some of those initiatives that um, J.P. Morgan has undertaken?
2: Um, I can talk about one in particular. I know we did recently with the New Voices Foundation, uh, which was a, a boot camp for female entrepreneurs. Um in which they you know learned some business skills, but they were also giving grants to support their businesses. and that was done in January um, because it, you know the great thing about grants is you don't take on debt, and that's probably what sinks a lot of the newer businesses is they can't ever climb out of it. So they've made a serious commitment to it. Um, we partnered with folks in our middle markets to do it as well as some community foundations. And that's a program that we're very proud of having taken on.
0: That's fantastic. Um, And as far as within the legal community, um, are you seeing any shifts in the in-house outside counsel relationship and how they interact?
2: I will say, um, you know, in September, uh, there was an open letter from the Financial Services Industry General council and they made it clear to the legal community that they're going to be focusing on racial and social injustice and, you know, equity uh, in the workplace, as well as in our engagement with outside counsel, I think that what you will find is a lot of these organizations are now focused on who are our timekeepers, who are coming on to our matters. Um, It's it's as important as who the organization employs internally as well as who they employ externally. So I think this is a conversation that's been a long time coming. Um, Even myself, when I was an associate at a law firm, I wasn't the person at the table at the RFPs, but I was the person at my desk at two o'clock in the morning. (laughs) So, um, you know, you have to make sure that the people that you're um, taking on understand that they have to create those spaces for um, opportunities for people of color within their firms. I think that's a big thing. It was major that they came out and signed that letter and we're using it to guide our legal department strategies going forward.
0: Excellent. And are you seeing shifts in uh, the day-to-day approach to the retention of outside counsel and particularly um, where it may be driven uh, uh, based upon data and, and metrics? Because we often hear about you know it having a huge impact in trying to grow this area of diversity.
2: Um, I can't. I can't say too much about what we're doing, um, but I can tell you that we are a financial services company and data and metrics is what we do best. Yes. So, <laughs> um, you know, <laughs> it, it plays a role. I will tell you that there are more conversations happening than ever. There's more attention being paid to it. Um, and there's a commitment behind it. That's not just words. That's you know, what I can say about that.
1: Um just curious Sophia to know in your role and given all of the great things that you've already described and have been involved with in personally and and are aware of within the bank what do you um, what do you feel are the priorities for purposes of you know advocacy work or community partnership or um, any and all of the above that we've already talked about today from your perspective in terms of um, you know where you think the most progress can be made, or the most sort of tangible results can be found.
2: Um, you know, from my perspective, I feel that a lot of the progress can be made when you're talking about helping individuals, because once you've helped somebody move forward from a legal problem that they're having. You know they're a better citizen, they're a better family member, they're a better worker, and so the stuff that's been most valuable and meaningful to me is if I'm, you know, working on a working on a divorce case and a woman gets away from her abusive husband, or I'm working on um, corrective justice action because somebody's been wrongfully convicted. Um, you know, when I was still in law school, I had an internship at uh, Cochrane Newfeld and Sheck, and they. Um, handle civil cases on behalf of people who have been freed after being wrongfully in prison. And all these years later, last year, I worked on an Innocence Project case. And you hear these numbers, you hear all these people in prison, the numbers after a while start to run together, they start to make no sense. People have been out of their homes for 15, 20, 30 years. But if you can work on a case and you watch one person walk free who shouldn't have been there in the first place. They're going back to their families. They're going to be a productive member of society. They mean something to somebody. And so I think when we focus at the individual level um, with some of the cases we're working on, you know, with, with um, down in Louisiana, with the people who have been convicted by non-unanimous juries or people who have been um, victims of wrongful stops or brutality. And it's, Turn their life around in a day. Hopefully, that's where it's going. Is that we're going to help these people turn their lives back the other way um, with our help? And I think that that's meaningful not only in the space of like access to justice, but I think it's also meaningful in terms of working with your colleagues. The conversations that have impacted me most during this time are one-on-one conversations with people who come from a different ethnicity or religion from me. And I talk to them and I learn something about their cultures and their communities and why they do things a certain way. Um, And then I can take that back with myself and I'm a little more empathetic. I'm a little more patient. Um, Things don't bother me as much, Uh, you know? And I think that that's the basis of society is just stop. We're not like a faceless mob, we're real people in there. And so hopefully that's where it's going as we start to see each other as, as individuals and as people and realize the impact that everything we're doing is having on each other's lives.
1: Yeah. I mean, just from my own, Oh, sorry, Tracy, I didn't mean
0: no, to cut you that's off. Quite all right.
1: My yeah. own personal, you know, perspective and feeling about this is that I think it has, you know, the environment, if you will, over the past six to 12 months has really allowed for us to have some genuine conversations, you know, to mm-hmm. talk, Um, very thoughtfully and dig deeply into issues that may otherwise have been perceived as provocative or inappropriate for the workplace, even in some circumstances, unfortunately. Um, And so, you know, I think what resonates with me is exactly the point that you made, which is to make connections with folks and identify areas where there may have been either a misapprehension or, you know, a, a lack of information or understanding that that was creating some kind of you know a barrier mm-hmm. or ability to relate and and at the end of the day i think having that relatability is the only basis for us to to make any form of progress regardless of you know what viewpoints are where differences may lie it's just that genuine human relatability that i think i feel more of um lately and i don't know tracy if if you have thoughts on that but that's where I feel.
0: But yes, and I think that that's a appropriate um, platform or arena in which to discuss just diversity and inclusion generally. Um, mm-hmm. The more you can have these kinds of real conversations about your background, about differences, about commonalities, um, the more understanding and you know, hopefully collaboration, you can grow out of that space. And it sounds like um, what we're talking about is not just happening, you know, in diverse communities or in the majority communities, but I think um, on the, in corporate communities uh, here in the U.S. as well as globally by um, the rise in talk about um, ESG. Uh, which stands, talks about corporations stepping up and being real participants in the communities and recognizing that there's constituencies and stakeholders have a say. And they're not just, you know, non-entities on a a piece of paper, but they're real live um, participants in our day-to-day. So, I mean, I think that that's a great segue into your thoughts, Afia, on, you know, the rise of ESG and what you're seeing um, internal and external as far as um, this increased impact on social, uh, social accountability as well as corporate sustainability.
2: I think in the corporate space, what we, a lot of people have realized um, is that they they have a role to play. Even if you're part of a corporation, a lot of a lot of my colleagues have um, become so outraged, whereas they ordinarily would, you know, kind of think this is going to play out with, you know, maybe nonprofit organizations or maybe governmental actors. We realize that we not only have our our valuable time that we can contribute, um, you know, because a lot of times corporations will throw dollars at a problem. We realize that we have people power. We can make statements. We can do business with people we um, who we think honor our values and share our values. And we have our skills that we can contribute to our community. And I find that a lot of people want to hear from us. Um, you know, you'll see on Twitter people like, Where are the CEOs? Why aren't they saying anything? And you saw people keeping tally after George Floyd was murdered. Like, this CEO didn't say anything. That CEO didn't say anything. This company has made no commitment. So that's definitely a shift. I mean, I was a, a small kid back when um apartheid was an issue in South Africa in the 80s and there was a lot more silence. Um, and I think that we have moved past that, and there's no more. There's there's certainly some folks who are silent, but a lot of the major corporations you see are not willing to be silent anymore, and they're willing to take that risk. So I think that's one shift you'll see. Um, we, for instance, um, have a um, authorization to commit a full workday to doing community service work, and I don't know that you see a lot of. Uh, companies that have that kind of paid time off for the employees. So that's another way literally putting your money where your mouth is because, um, you know, folks are still being paid for their workday, but they're doing something in the community and not necessarily at their desks. And so for me, being an employee of a company that does that, I'm very motivated because I know it's supported and I know it's supported at the top. Um, especially it's heartening to have, our, to have our leaders make statements about um, society and where we should be going and what's right and what's wrong and valuing all of our lives. So um, for me, it's heartening to see that. And I'm not so sure that I've ever really worked at a company that has come out and made these kinds of statements that I've seen. I remember working at one place where we didn't even have Martin Luther King Day off. So <laughs> you know, it's <laughs> it's quite a difference. Uh, it's quite a difference. And now we have Juneteenth off. And mm-hmm. who would have seen that coming even a year ago? So, um, yeah, so I think, I think we're going in the right direction. And I think the other thing we've realized is that government's not always always going to be the step in to be the one that saves us. And I think that's a lesson, you know, which we could have learned long ago, but we're learning it now. um, And we're moving forward. And as a society, we need all of us to play a part. So I think that's where it's going. I think it's going to continue along those lines. It's not just lip service. Companies are putting in the infrastructure now that's going to make sure that they honor their own commitments and making themselves accountable to the public. So I think it's going to be, I think that's around to stay. I hope that answers your question.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Beautifully, Absolutely. (laughs) So are you willing to offer us any more predictions as to what we can anticipate, whether it's in uh, the financial services space, the legal community, um, at large? It would be interesting to hear your viewpoint.
2: Um, I, I think what you're going to see is a lot more faces of color, and I think even looking at the inauguration this year, um, you started to see that. Even if you now look at um, web pages of your favorite corporations or your favorite, you see pictures that reflect more of who we are. Um, I think you will see corporate legal departments probably become more engaged than they ever have in some of these efforts. um I think a lot of times we thought we had to wait for a law firm to pull us along or <laughs> uh or do it in as an individual commitment. I think you're gonna see it on a larger scale um particularly as you know we have the we have the people um to to do some of the work, so I think that's gonna happen a lot more and I'm hoping um, there's a new day Uh, on a personal level. I feel more optimistic. I feel like the moment is ripe to do some of the things we might've shied away from before because we thought it was too controversial or nobody was going to let us do it. I feel encouraged by my own leadership. Um, We've gotten a lot of the difficult conversations Out of the way. Um, Those will always continue, but I feel that the fact that people were even willing to have them heartens me that we can do more. Um, And so I'm going to choose to be optimistic that there's a new day.
0: Wow, that's an amazing way to wrap up our first inaugural podcast. Uh, Extraordinary. Um, You're an inspiration, truly, for your not just commitment in words, but years of dedicated service. So we, we thank you for that. And um, I join you in that sentiment. It's important for us to remain optimistic. It's important for us, I think, to look at how far we have actually come in a relatively short period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that your uh, remark about us taking our own future into our own hands rather than looking for someone to do it for us and taking sometimes the risk of not necessarily getting it perfect the first time, but certainly putting the uh, action and money in where Mm -hmm. uh, we know we can make uh, changes ever so incrementally if we all do our own individual part we will make things happen.
1: Absolutely. Tanya. I'm so honored to have you today. Afia, thank you so much. Everything you've said is just so thoughtful and um, just proud to know you and very, very grateful for your time today. Thank you.
2: Thank you. And thank, thank you, you for having me. Thank you. I appreciate Absolutely. it.
0: We'd like to thank Xavier Dudas, and might share along with the rest of our production team for their extraordinary assistance in putting this podcast together.